All right, dear Catholic listeners, let's get down to it. Most of us Catholic married folk have deep desires within us for authentic, loving, joyful, intimate sexual sharing with our spouses. We want to be loving to our spouses. We want to make love to our spouses in ways that are healthy, ordered, and holy. We want to know our spouses. We want to be known. We want to accept our spouses. We want to be accepted by our spouses. We want to love our spouses, and we also want to be loved, or at least... We've had those desires and those impulses in the past. Maybe we've given up on them. Maybe we're discouraged. Maybe we're disheartened. So many Catholic spouses are. It's common and it's tragic, but it makes sense to me. Why? Because sexuality is usually the trickiest, most difficult part of the Catholic marriage relationship. Let me say that again. Sexuality is usually the trickiest and most difficult part of the Catholic marriage relationship. And why is that? It's because sexuality depends on so many other aspects of the relationship being ordered in order for that sexual intimacy to flourish. We want deep, loving, joyful, intimate sexual sharing with our spouses, but so often there's pressure, there's shame, there's guilt, Anger, conflict, tension, frustration, disagreement, disharmony, sullenness, withdrawal, disconnection, feelings of helplessness, avoidance, resignations, dozens of other painful experiences, too many to list here. The reality is that we are wounded in so many different ways. We have attachment wounds, we have integrity wounds, and those wounds impact how Catholic spouses relate with each other sexually. Sex is the most sensitive barometer to how things are going in the marriage relationship as a whole. God wants Catholic couples not just to have sex, though. Animals have sex. They can copulate. We know that here on the farm. But God wants Catholic couples to have an ordered, healthy sexual intimacy. And the stakes are high. Our Lady of Fatima revealed to Jacinta that, quote, the sins which cause most souls to go to hell are sins of the flesh, end quote. And when she is using that language, sins of the flesh, she means sins against chastity or sexual sins. For many Catholic spouses, the sexual situation can seem impossible. We've got 28% of Catholic marriages end in divorce, and it's probably a sure bet to say that sexual intimacy isn't great in those relationships, Many, many other Catholic marriages suffer from issues in the sexual relationship. There is no other area of Catholic life so fraught with complexity, nuance, so sensitive to disorder and dysfunction as the married sexual life. And why is that? It's this. Because sex is so often wrenched out of its proper context. Sex is so often wrenched, and I mean that literally, just twisted, distorted out of its proper context, right? What is its proper context? We'll review this, right? It's procreation. It's the beginning and raising of children, and it's union. It's the bond between the spouses, the union of the spouses. What happens is that Catholic spouses often look to their sexual relationship to resolve problems that do not originate in the sexual realm. Thus, there's a misuse of sexuality in the service of trying to get deeper underlying needs met, attachment needs and integrity needs. And we reviewed those attachment needs and integrity needs in episode 62. But you know what? There are solutions. There are ways out of these sexual conundrums, even for spouses that are really jaded, really disheartened, really discouraged. And we're going to talk about those ways out. We're going to talk about the promise of solutions. We're going to talk about the good news of Catholic sexual married life today. All things, all things work together for good for those who love the Lord. St. Paul tells us, Romans 8.28, all things, no exceptions, all things. There's no asterisk. There's no footnote that excludes your particular sexual situation. All things work together for good for those who love the Lord. That is my absolute favorite verse in all of scripture. And the fact is that so many Catholic couples could have a much 
better life of sexual intimacy. That is so possible, even though it may not seem believable. There could be a long history of disappointment. There could be a lot of false starts. There could be a lot of discouragement in this area. You might feel like you're Charlie Brown and I'm Lucy holding the football for you, about to yank it out just when you try one more time. I get that, but stay with me. Listen a while longer and see if you find some new ideas, some new ways of looking at things. I know, I know, you may have been married 20, 30 years. This problem's may have been around a long time. I get that, but come and see what I have to say. Let's give it a try. I'm clinical psychologist Peter Malinowski. I am your host and guide. This is episode 67 of the weekly podcast, Interior Integration for Catholics, and it's titled Catholic and Uncatholic Sex in Catholic Marriages. Thank you for being here with me. Interior Integration for Catholics is part of our online outreach, Souls and Hearts, at soulsandhearts.com. Souls and Hearts is all about your human formation. It's all about shoring up your natural foundation for a solid Catholic spiritual life. We are doing a whole series of episodes in Interior Integration for Catholics on Sexuality and Catholic Marriages. We're using the image of a Catholic canopied marriage bed. And today we are focusing on the fitted sheet, the top sheet, and the blankets. What do those represent in this model? Well... The fitted sheet is the eros. It's the sexual attraction. It's the intensity of the sexual passion between the spouses. It's the actual physical sexual contact. The top sheet, that represents the communication between the Catholic spouses. And the blankets are the heartfelt warmth and affection, the emotional connection between the spouses. Those are the parts of the bed that we're focusing on today. I've got four major concepts that I would like to give you. I'm organizing this episode around these four concepts. The first concept, the individual human and spiritual formation of the spouses greatly influences the quality of their sexual experience. Number two, sex always happens in a relational context. Three, that relational context influences the quality of the sexual experience between the spouses. That's basically saying the context is important. And number four, sexual intimacy is a great good, but there are times when it may not be best to engage in sexual relations. All right, those four points. The individual human and spiritual formation of the spouses greatly influence the quality of their sexual experience. Two, Sexual contact always happens in a relational context. Three, the relational context influences the quality of the sexual experience between the spouses. And four, sexual intimacy is a great good, but there are times when it may not be best to engage in sexual union. All right, let's take these one at a time. Let's make sure we really understand what we're talking about here. The first one. The human and spiritual formation of the spouses greatly influences the quality of their sexual experiences. Remember, human formation of the husband and human formation of the wife are the first two legs of the Catholic canopied marriage bed. So much depends on those, so much rests on those. We're focusing again on interior integration. How integrated are we in the sexual sphere? That's the area, which as a clinical psychologist, 20 years of experience now, that's the area where I see the greatest fragmentation in Catholic couples. That's the area that is the most impacted. It's the most sensitive to disorder and disruption and disconnection and a lack of integration inside. Other legs of the bed include understanding ourselves and understanding our spouse's attachment needs and our integrity needs. And also another leg of the bed is, the fourth leg of the bed, is understanding these in terms of multiplicity and unity, right, from an internal family systems informed perspective. As a living human being, we have a unity. Each human person is one but each human person also has parts. We'll review this really briefly. This is the basic concepts of IFS. When we get to June 2021, we're going to be talking about this in a lot greater depth. 
But for now, within each person, there are these parts which are separate collections of thoughts, emotions, attitudes, impulses, desires, abilities, interests, relational styles, body sensations, and worldviews. And these are not just transient emotional states, but they rather are discrete parts or subpersonalities or distinct modes of operating within the person's larger internal system. They seem like separate persons within us phenomenologically. And each part within us seems like its own little person, right? It's got its own particular range of emotion, style of expression, its own abilities. It's got its own modes of operating. Parts get forced into extreme roles when there are attachment injuries, when there are relational traumas, when there's integrity issues that come up. And each part has a different position or attitude about sexuality and about sexual intimacy and also about the nature of our spouse. When these parts are disconnected from the core self, each part has an agenda. Each part's trying to pursue some perceived good for the whole self. That becomes a problem because then you have parts operating at cross purposes, using different means, pursuing different ends. And parts that are operating autonomously, not governed by the core self, always get what they don't want. They always wind up with the very thing that they are trying to avoid. Right, so let's take a look at this. Let's take a look at the deep assumptions held by different parts of a somewhat scrupulous young married Catholic woman. We're going to make up a story here about a young married Catholic woman who's got some real scrupulosity issues and she has this highly moralizing critical part that believes that God doesn't really want us to have sex. Sex is dirty. Sex is bad. So even though we might have to have sex, we shouldn't enjoy it. And we're probably going to get punished for fooling around before we got married. There's probably consequences to the kinds of things that we did, my husband and I, before we got married. That's what that part it believes. That's what it holds on to. And there's reasons why parts hold on to these ideas, but it's very common for there to be a critical moralizing part. And it has a particular view of sex. All right, so that's the first part of her. Second part of her is a dependent part. And this part basically says, I need to have sexual relations with my husband because if I don't, there's this risk he could abandon me and I don't want to be abandoned. I couldn't bear it if he's cold and distant. I fear that he's going to withdraw from me if I don't have sex with him. Right, so that's the attitude of a dependent part. It's seeking the good of staying connected emotionally with the husband. The third part that this scrupulous young Catholic woman has is an intellectual part. And this intellectual part says things like, well, Christopher West in his Theology of the Body books discusses how beautiful Catholic sexuality is. So there has to be a beauty, there has to be a goodness in sexuality somewhere, and we just can't refuse to have sexual intimacy because it stirs us up and because it gets us all anxious. So that part may be reasoning along those lines. And there may be an approval-seeking part that says, you know what, I really want my husband to be happy with the sexual experience. If he knows that I'm so enjoying sex, uh, then he might be kinder to me. He might be more likely to meet my emotional needs. So maybe I should pretend to be enjoying sex more than I do. Right, so you can see how just in this really simple example of four parts, they hold very different positions, very different attitudes about sex, very different attitudes about the husband. They all have good intentions for the young woman, but they all have a very partial view of the situation because they are parts. They're not integrated very well. And so they tend to operate autonomously and independently when they are allowed to drive the bus within the young woman's system. In the next episode, episode 68, I'll get into stories of Catholic married couples and how their parts interact to illustrate how complex all of this can be. So I'm going to flesh it all out with a story. We'll have story time next week. All right, so that's, that's the first one, right? The human and spiritual formation of the spouses greatly influence the quality of their sexual experiences. It goes back a long way for us. It goes back and off into our childhoods. Second point. Sexual acts always happen in a relational context. Now, for some of you, that may sound like 
obvious, right? Of course, sexual acts happen in a relational context. But some of you may be saying, Dr. Peter, what about masturbation? What about those of us that might consider ourselves solo sexuals? Well, okay, let's deal with that. The command our Lord gave was to love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Second great commandment. That means that you are to be in relationship with yourself. You can't love yourself unless there's some kind of relationship with yourself. It wouldn't make any sense. We have a relationship within ourselves. And how is that manifested? It's through these parts. It's through this multiplicity that I was talking about. Internal family systems ideas here that we are not just a single unitary homogenous personality. We are actually much more dynamic than that. We're much more complex and nuanced than that. Parts often have very different attitudes about masturbation. Those of you that may have struggled with masturbation will know this. There can be parts that are totally into it in the moment because they are seeking to protect you from something or seeking to help you in some way, and other parts appalled by it, right, obviously. And we did a whole four-episode series on masturbation not that long ago. As a baptized Catholic, you are a member of the body of Christ, and all of your actions impact the rest of the body, the rest of the members of the church. Even if you think they're private, even if you think that what you're doing on your own in the dark, nobody knows, except God probably, has an impact on all the rest of us. We are one body in Christ. Final thing, if you're married, your body is your spouse's body. The two shall become one flesh. There is this consent in the marriage vows, this total giving of self, one body. So anything you're doing with your own body is going to have an impact on your spouse because you actually share the bodies. That's how like sacramental Catholics marriages are. You don't just, you know, possess your own body, my body, right? As though it were just your private property. If you marry, you've given yourself body, mind, soul, heart to your spouse. There's a reality there. And so these so-called private sins, if my spouse doesn't catch me, if it doesn't, my spouse doesn't see what I'm doing. No, 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 no. None of that applies. There is a knowing. There is an impact. It's not just about your spouse's subjectivity and what they see and what they don't see. And I actually believe that spouses at some level know far more about what their spouses are doing and not doing than may meet the eye. There's just a sense of it sometimes. Now, spouses can work hard to keep that out of conscious awareness. They can work hard to suppress it, deny it, and so forth. Sometimes it seems like it's just come from a bolt from the blue. Okay, yeah. But a lot of times there's a, a knowing at a fundamental level that something's really wrong. So this idea that you know we've got our private sphere where what we do just doesn't come under the scope of the marriage or doesn't impact the wife or the husband is totally false. So that's the relational context. Sexual acts always happen in a relational context. The third idea. The relational context influences greatly the quality of the sexual experience. What happens is the relational context, the connection, the physical embodiment, the physical union strips away superficial ways of coping. It exposes deeper vulnerabilities. Underlying issues come up. All kinds of things get laid bare within the vulnerability of the sexual union of the spouses. We need to be working on the underlying relational context, the rest of the bed. Okay, so many Catholic couples hope that they can just focus on the sheet, right? On the eros, on the sexual attraction. That's the problem for some couples, that at least as they perceive it. But the sheet alone will not support you and your spouse. So many people hope that the sheet will support their weight, like suspended in midair. 
No, you need the rest of the bed. You need that floor. You need those legs. You need that frame. You need that box spring. You need that mattress. You need the pillows. You need all of that. It's easier, though, to hope that you can just find quick solutions to sexual problems. You know, as though there was just some sort of prepackaged, some kind of just fix it quick remedy. We need the rest of the bed. We need the rest of these things to come into order. That's a harder and longer road, no doubt about it, but it is a much more sure path. So let's start again with this model. The rock solid floor, that is the foundation. That's the presence of God. It's an active belief in God's providence and not just a belief, but a confidence, a trust in God's providence. The four legs, First two legs are the wife and the husband's commitment to their own individual interior integration, their own human formation, their own psychological well-being, their own emotional health, removing the beam from their own eyes. That's very, very important. There's got to be a taking of individual responsibility for one's own human formation. Third leg, attachment theory, attachment needs integrity needs, really understanding what our primary motivators are, what's driving us at the deepest levels, helps us to understand why we do what we do, why we pursue things the way that we pursue things, especially in the sexual realm. The fourth leg, internal family systems approaches, understanding not only ourselves in terms of this unity and multiplicity of parts, but also coming to understand our spouse in terms of a unity and a multiplicity of parts can be so helpful to understanding and making sense out of what's happening in the sexual relationship. The frame and the box spring, these hold everything together and it represents the firm commitment between the husband and the wife, the upholding of the marriage vows, right? The vows. I promise to be true to you in good times and in bad, in sickness and in health. I will love you and honor you all the days of my life. All the days of my life. Period. Full stop. No exceptions. No limitations. It's the charity. It's willing the highest good for one another. That is what holds the whole bed together above that floor, which is the presence of God, the belief in God's providence. The mattress, that's that empathetic attunement, that empathy we talked about, really knowing the spouse, being able to enter into your spouse's phenomenological world, appreciate things as he or she does. And then the pillows are the acceptance, right? Not necessarily endorsement, but the acceptance of the reality of who you are and also acceptance of the reality of who your spouse is. We've got into that in a lot more depth in the last episode, episode 66. Many sexual problems actually have their roots and first causes in childhood, right? They're actually not sexual problems per se. They're more relational problems or attachment problems or integrity problems, but they manifest themselves through sexual symptoms. And in particular, I'm going to refer you back to episode 57, right? The main psychological reason why Catholic marriages fail, it's because we have parts that carry these burdens of unmet attachment needs, unmet integrity needs. This stuff is often unconscious. It's driven into the unconscious by managers who don't want us to be aware of it in order to help us keep functioning through the day. But that old stuff gets activated often in the sexual relationship. Now, some sexual problems actually have their roots in the actual relationship between the husband and the wife. It can be unresolved tension around premarital sexual activity. That is really common. There can be issues around expectations, voiced or unvoiced between the husband and the wife, issues around boundaries, disagreements about what should happen and how it should happen in the marriage bed, and then issues around dignity. You know, there's a particular case that I'm just going to bring up now, and that is for those couples that did abstain and did remain at least relatively chaste before marriage, there can be this deep sense of entitlement, this setting up of false expectations that once 
We're married. The sex is going to be great. Now it's legal. Now, because we have been chased, we are going to be rewarded and, you know, the birds are going to sing and it's going to be this great choreography and, and everything's going to fall into place. Right. Right. Where is that in Catholic teaching? That's actually much more of a worldly idea, right? This whole idea that you're entitled to great sex. It's a gift. If there is this deep sexual union at the beginning of the marriage, it's a gift. It's not something that you're entitled to. There's a learning curve to connecting with your spouse deeply in this new way, this new way of sexual intimacy. And I think sometimes people can have idealistic notions, unrealistic, really, notions about what it means when you come together as husband and wife for the first time. The other thing is, you know, a lot of times there's this sense of entitlement if couples have waited to have sex my way or sex your way. Uh, Have it your way. I mean, some of us are old enough to remember the old Burger King commercials, right? They go back all the way to 1974 and they ended that series of Have It Your Way in 1998. It's like one of these really long-running 24-year history of this ad campaign, Have It Your Way, really reflected the attitudes that we have in our culture, the entitlement, the idea that everything should be our way. And in reality, that's not how it works. We just simply can't impose our will on something as complex, as something so relational, so personal, so vulnerable as sex. It's a very heavy-handed kind of attitude to have. There's a mystery here. There should be a sense of awe, a sense of wonder. All right, so a brief segue to talk about the top sheet. That's communication, the five love languages, Gary Chapman here, words of affirmation, quality time, acts of service, gifts, physical touch, And what I want to emphasize here is that different parts resonate much more with different love languages. You know, a lot of times we think we have one love language or maybe we have two. I'm going to argue that different parts are going to have different approaches to these different love languages when they're active in the marriage. So it's much more nuanced, much more, much more complex than often we appreciate. When we assume that we just have one love language, we just assume that we have this standard personality, this one personality, that's usually because one manager part is in charge most of the time. But if you think about your life more broadly, you look back at the times when your life was punctuated by moments when that part wasn't in charge, it's going to look really, really different, right? So blankets, the warmth. The relational affection, the emotional connection, we really need this in our relationships with our spouses. There are so many times when husbands, sometimes wives, will attempt to use the physical connection to make up for a deficit in the emotional connection. There's this attempt to try to make it happen with greater physical intimacy. And you know what? It is not going to work in the long run. Sometimes it may look like it works in the short run because there happens to be an intensity between a part of the husband and a part of the wife. And somehow that manages to sustain itself for a while, but it's never going to be stable. Sexual intimacy is so embodied. It's so embodied It's the sort of the epitome, right? The pinnacle of the embodied relationship between the husband and the wife, the sharing of the body. And so many times, as Bessel van der Kolk tells us, the body keeps the score. That's the title of probably the best-selling trauma book in the last five or seven years. The body keeps the score. Anything that we've kept out of conscious awareness, anything that we've denied, anything that we've shoved away, anything that we won't acknowledge, our bodies are very likely to hold that for us. So our bodies hold these deep unmet attachment needs, these deep unmet integrity needs. They get held in our bodies. And the things that we hold in our bodies that we hold outside of conscious awareness can very much be activated by sexual connection. 
All right. So sometimes these guys that don't need anybody, you know, these Marlboro men, these tough guys, when they have sex, they can regress. They can actually become very different, very small, because all kinds of needs can come up in those moments because of the intensity of what's going on, not just emotionally, not just relationally, but also in the body, right? Think about the body changes that are going on during sexual connection, right? Think about the endocrinology of orgasm. There's all kinds of hormones that are shifting rapidly in the blood chemistry. There's all kinds of changes going on in neurophysiology. There's all kinds of different neuroelectrical pathways that are getting activated in the brain. There's a huge impact of of body processes when we are relating in the sexual act. And this is all happening in this very close, very proximate connection with another person. Another thing that happens is there's so much self-absorption in sex. It's so common for there to be self-absorption. There can be an idolization of sex. Let me just give you a couple examples of how sex can be put on a pedestal, can be made larger than it actually is. One example is when people have been traumatized sexually, they can look to be redeemed sexually. It's a very common thing that trauma therapists see all the time. If a part has been harmed, carries the burden of some kind of sexual trauma, it may be looking for some kind of sexual redemption. That can be very unconscious. That can be very much outside of conscious awareness. It can sound even kind of crazy. But boy, does that have an impact. Let me tell you. Sometimes sex is seen as a symbol, right? A part wants to hold on to the idea that because we're having sex, that must mean we're close. Because there's this physical union, there must be a commensurate emotional union. There must be a similar relational union. There must be a commitment, right? Not so, not necessarily so, can be absolutely untrue. But there can be ways that parts really believe that. That physical closeness implies some kind of real relational intimacy or connection. Kind of reminds me of people who get tattoos of their significant other. In 2018, PBS ran an article about how many tens of millions of dollars go into tattoo removal. And, you know, that's because it didn't work out, right? You know, you've seen these jokes where people have like different names crossed out about how, who they're going to be, you know, eternally devoted to and so forth. I think sometimes it's another way of expressing through the body something that we're not so sure about, that we want to be reassured about. If we have a tattoo of my unending devotion to another person, that that must somehow make it more real. That must somehow make it more true. It's not actually the case. Okay, so let's talk about the marital debt. The marital debt. This is something that comes up in St. Thomas Aquinas in his supplement to the Summa. So let's remember that in the marriage vows, there is a gift of the body from the husband to the wife and the wife to the husband. And by virtue of the marriage, husbands and wives possess each other's bodies. You owe yourself in a sense, to your spouse. You owe your body to your spouse. A lot of times that's not very clear. People don't, some of that doesn't come out in the uh, pre-cana preparation or something like that. And the sexual union is a gift. It's meant to be a gift from the husband to the wife, from the wife to the husband. There is though a primary responsibility St. Thomas Aquinas teaches us to your own well-being. Sexual relations should never degrade or harm either of the spouses. That's not just physically, but also psychologically, emotionally. If one spouse is harmed by the sexual experience, the other spouse is also going to be harmed, even if he or she doesn't know it, right? Because again, the two have become one, right? The two are one flesh. So, Sometimes, it's less so now, but I've seen this sometimes in traditional Catholic circles, uh, there can be this idea that husbands can collect the marital debt 
and if that has ever come up in your marriage, I'm just going to ask you guys, is that how you want to be seen by your wives as sort of Hector, the marital debt collector? You know, it sounds creepy. It sounds weird. Where's the gift? Where's the love? Remember, your wife is God's beloved, cherished daughter. And I knew a guy that demanded sex twice a day from his wife. Day in, day out, without exception. Didn't matter where she was in her, uh, in, in her life. Didn't matter how she felt. Didn't matter what, you know, what she was thinking, feeling. Didn't matter like, what her attitude was towards the sex. He was married. He was Catholic. He was entitled. He was going to c- collect that debt. Remember, Eve was fashioned from Adam's rib, from his side, not from his skull to be above him, not from his foot bone to be below him, but from his side to be together with him, equally yoked. And sometimes, guys, I want you to think about like the anatomy of the whole sexual experience, right? You know, when your wives allow you in, you know, it's not just one part of you, it's all of you, all of the husband goes inside the wife in a sense, right? To becoming one flesh. There's a lot of symbolism there. That's why rape is such a terrible, terrible thing. You know, a number of years ago, there was this statement bandied about. It's still up there on the internet. You can see it all over the place. People saying, rape is about power. It's not about sex. Well... I understand the intention behind the statement. You know, rape is certainly more than sex. We want to understand the power dynamics and so forth. But there's a reason why that kind of violence and that kind of domination is happening through a sexual way. There is obviously sex involved. And there's been a lot of pushback in recent years against that statement. You know, rape is about power. It's not about sex. All right, what I want to move to now, though, is the question of how present is God when you and your spouse are making love, when you are in that sexual intimacy, when you're in the canopied marriage bed. God's going to be present whether you want him to be or not. You know, he's omnipresent. But is sex for you sacred? Is it sacramental? Or is it sort of furtive, you know, kind of done in hidden corners? Has it got all sorts of this uh, disconnect from your spiritual life laden with it? It's very common. It's very common. And that leads us to this next little topic about how sex can be un-Catholic. How can sex be un-Catholic? Well, the first way is through the acts themselves, right? Are the acts themselves ordered or oriented to the bond of marriage? Are they oriented towards procreation? You know, sometimes you get to what I call sometimes the foreplay card, right? Where because it's, quote, foreplay, it gets included because it's in the broader context of normal vaginal intercourse, right? As long as this thing sort of is part of the whole process leading to uh, leading to vaginal intercourse and orgasm, it's okay. Well, is it really? Is that really what's going on? I'm going to challenge people to look at why the things they do are sexually appealing. What is it about certain things that is sexually exciting? Because there can be a lot of disorder in that. There can be a lot of disorder in the things that excite people. Why am I attracted to these things? And if we start looking at things like oral sex, anal sex, things that you know do not orient themselves towards procreation, I think some really fruitful exploration can happen around this as to why that's so appealing. Right? Obviously, there are certain things that are not ever because of the intrinsic aspects of them oriented towards procreation or oriented towards the bond of marriage. Masturbation, for example, husband doing that on his own, that's not oriented toward the good of the marriage. It's not oriented toward the good of the spouse, towards the marriage bond, or certainly not towards procreation. 
So that's one way. That's the matter, the acts themselves. The second thing is the intention, the motivation, or the orientation. And here's where a lot of sticky wickets can happen. Here's where a lot of trouble can happen for Catholic spouses. Because a lot of times the intention, the motivation, or the orientation is to get my needs met. And you know what? Sex is never going to resolve deep unmet attachment needs or deep unmet integrity needs. Talked about this in episode 62. It's not going to happen. It's not how it works. It's not the means for healing from deep attachment needs or deep integrity needs. You know, just like food is not going to cure deep attachment needs or deep integrity needs, drugs are not going to cure deep attachment needs, deep integrity needs. That's not what sex is for. That's not what sex is oriented towards for Catholic men and women, for Catholic husbands and wives. All right, heart set, mindset, soul set. This is another way in which we can derail good sexual relating. For example, it's not uncommon for people to have fantasies about somebody else when they're having sexual intimacy with their partner. This is a really destructive thing. This is something that Christ, our Lord, singled out in Matthew 5, 28, when he says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Sometimes people choose to do this in order to, quote, spice up the sexual relationship. They may find that they have a more ready sexual response if they're engaged in some fantasy, for example. Other ways are reenacting things that were seen in pornographic movies, for example. Sometimes that can be something that one spouse tries to impose on another spouse. It could be all kinds of violations of dignity with that. So the next, the fourth major concept that I want to address is that sexual intimacy is a great good, but there are times where it might not be best to engage in the marital act. Sometimes it's impossible because of injuries, medical conditions. You know, a woman immediately postpartum, for example, extreme examples like that. Some, and so that's for physical reasons. You know, it could be because of paralysis, could be because of other types of issues that have come up that make it impossible. Sometimes, though, it's not impossible, but it's inadvisable. That, again, could be for health reasons. Imagine a woman who's eight months pregnant, where that could be an issue that would kick off uh, premature contractions and so forth, leading to a baby born too early. It could be trauma issues. This is really a common one. I have seen a kind of insensitivity oftentimes from spouses when spouses are working through stuff, they're bringing up stuff that goes back to sexual trauma. There's all kinds of automatic associations that are outside of the client's will, that's outside of their capacity to directly control, and they can get really exacerbated because certain parts are not making clear distinctions between previous abusers and the sexual experiences that happen there and what's currently going on in their marriages, even if there's nothing disordered or nothing intrinsically wrong about the types of sexual experiences that they're having in the marriage. Body image issues. This can often be a huge thing, right? for people who are struggling in some way. Um, A lot of people have parts that hate their bodies. A lot of people have parts that really are, really condemn their bodies for various things, often laced with heavy shame. It could be other things that get in the way, grief, rage, abandonment issues, guilt. There can be sexual compulsions or sexual addictions that make it such that the bond is not something that the person can focus on. It may be advisable to take a break so that certain things can be healed without causing more damage to the spouse or more damage to the marital relationship. There are times where I have recommended fasting from sexual intimacy. Usually that's because there's trauma and usually because it can take the pressure off the recovery trajectory of my client It's also really valuable sometimes to help develop intimacy without 
it all ending in intercourse. There are a lot of couples in which the only intimacy always seems to end in intercourse. There's nothing sort of in between or nothing that doesn't lead to intercourse at the end. That can actually lead to much better sexual intimacy in the long run. Remember, we want to be playing the long game here, not just what immediately seems to heighten sexual attraction and sexual intensity, but what's going to be really foundational, and what's really going to build a deep bond between the spouses over time. Sometimes husbands and wives agree to having marital intimacy on a schedule, and we're going to have it on these days of the week or this day of the week. There can be real pros to that. It can be can be predictable and expected on a given night. There can be a special space created for that. It can be a beautiful thing to do that. There can also be cons to it, right? Because when you put it on the calendar, that may or may not respond to where a woman is in her cycle, for example, or how well the kids are doing with their colds, you know, their, their poor sleep schedules if they're little. So we want to be flexible when we do have these schedules. But I'm going to also argue that both men and women need to learn sexual continence. Again, if sex is being used as a replacement for masturbation, or if it's used to prevent some kind of other acting out, if it's being used, really misused, to try to get attachment needs met, to try to get integrity needs met, often that those periods of continence are times that are painful, right? Because we have to have the humility to realize what's actually going on within us. But they can be so valuable in terms of getting at the underlying deeper issues that need to be resolved. One thing I'm going to emphasize too is that in Luke 20, Verses 34 to 36, our Lord tells us there's no sex in heaven. There's no marriage in heaven, right? He says, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are accounted worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. So this whole business of sexuality is very much an on-earth thing. It's something that exists for when we're here. We are to have the vision to see beyond just this life. One final thing I want to say here is that sexual problems are a gift. Romans 8.28, I mentioned it before, all things work together for good for those who love the Lord. That includes any sexual difficulties you're having in your marriage. They're, they're signs. They're like the lights on your car dashboard that indicate that something deeper is wrong. A lot of times people would like to just extinguish those lights. In the old days, you could just pull a fuse and those lights in the dash would go out. Right? But that didn't solve whatever the deeper issue was. So these, these sexual issues that come up in marriages are a gift. They help point towards the things that we need to resolve at a deeper level within us. I am going to argue that we need to make the effort to have sexual intimacy with our spouses. We need to make that effort. The sex does not have to be perfect to be good. Perfectionism can get in the way. Like I mentioned before, there's a learning curve to this. There's a lot of reasons why husbands and wives can avoid, right? It can be extremely painful for spouses when a spouse just disengages and won't attempt to do the underlying work to engage in a way that would allow the union to happen between the spouses. So while obviously we don't want to have a sexual relating or sexual intimacy that's harmful to either of the spouses, we also don't want to have a situation where there is a refusal to do that underlying work, to do that human formation work, to address those underlying issues. Seek and you shall find. It's really, really important. This isn't just to be able to resolve the sexual issues. It's really to be able to resolve the deeper attachment issues, the deeper integrity issues, and those all get bound up in our relationship with God. Those all get bound up in our relationship with Our Lady as well. All right, so let's talk about some common mistakes 
that couples make when they try actively to work on sexual issues? Well, the first one is to actually not try to work on the sexual issues. It's to avoid sexual issues. It's to ignore them. It's to not communicate about them. It's you know, not working on your own human formation, not working on your own spiritual formation, lots of sins of omission here, really. And I do call them sins, right? Because we are to be giving of ourselves to our spouses. So if we don't work on this stuff, it's not just going to redound to us, but it's also going to impact our marriages. There can be issues around not setting appropriate boundaries to protect oneself or to protect one's spouse from harm in the sexual relationship. It can be this giving up, this resignation. It can also be this concept of spiritual bypassing. And spiritual bypassing is the use of spiritual ideas and practices to sidestep or to avoid facing unresolved emotional issues, unresolved psychological wounds, unfinished developmental tasks. This concept came from John Wellwood. It was back in the early 80s. And that can be where we say, well, it's just our cross or the fact that we're having sexual problems is just because of all that premarital sex that we engaged in. And so it's just a cross we have to bear now. Um, Not necessarily. There certainly may be things that redound back to those times, but There's also a lot of attachment needs and and integrity needs that could be addressed if you were willing to re-engage with this and in a way that would be effective, in a way that would be effective. So let's talk about like what actually helps, what actually helps, because I said we were going to talk about like what actually makes a difference. I am a huge fan of tailored solutions. And what do I mean by that? I mean specific guidance for your particular situation. Leo Tolstoy in his novel Anna Karenina in 1878 said that all happy families are alike, but every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. All happy families are alike, but every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. There's a great diversity in the misery that happens because of sexual dysfunction in Catholic couples. There isn't a one-size-fits-all approach that's going to work well in all kinds of situations. And sometimes you get people that say, well, you know, Dr. Peter, I listened to your podcast and I read a book by a Catholic author on Catholic sexuality, and you know what? It didn't help. Right. Right. It's unrealistic to think that you're just going to listen to a podcast or you're going to read a book and that is going to magically open the doors and resolve everything for you. It doesn't work like that. We need tailored solutions. So often that means that we're going to bring another person in, maybe a therapist, right? Catholic therapist. We have all kinds of resources at soulsandhearts.com for finding a Catholic therapist. We have a whole free video course called The Catholic's Guide to Choosing a Therapist, The Catholic's Guide to Self-Help that can help you decide whether you need that. But if you and your husband or if you and your wife are having difficulty and you're not, you've not been able to kind of work it out using your own resources, it's time to bring somebody else in. It's time to bring somebody else in. And you know what? Often the obstacle to that is difficulties with shame, difficulties with vulnerability. That can really keep us stuck. Can really keep us stuck. When we're dealing with these things, it's really important. Husbands and wives, think about not only your own safety and security, but think about the safety and security for your wife. Right? Think about that vulnerability. Often when husbands and wives begin to discuss sexual issues, there's all kinds of armor that comes on. And it makes sense, right? Given how uniquely positioned spouses are to hurt each other. When you've got this sexual connection, when you've got this union, when you've got this level of vulnerability, when you've got all the disappointments and you've got these unmet attachment needs and these unmet integrity needs and all this comes together in this really heavy, heavy stuff, Yeah, it can be hard, right? A little humor can be helpful in all of this. Sometimes humor can really leaven this. Communication, really, really important. Putting things into words, right? That's that top sheet we were talking about on the bed. The relational warmth, so helpful, right? To be able to communicate about this stuff with warmth, with empathy, with connection. Now that's going to be hard if we're looking to our spouse to meet our mommy needs and our daddy needs and our God needs. You know, that's not going to be easy. We've got to make sure that we're dealing with those needs separately, right? 
I'm going to encourage spouses to look at each other when they're talking about these sorts of things and to look at each other when they're actually making love to each other. To look at each other. That makes the person somehow seem more immediate and real. Look at each other. Listen to each other. One of the things I get in this area a lot is, um, Dr. Peter, do you have any books that you would recommend uh, that, that we read, my, my, my wife and I, or my husband and I? Uh, no. I, I, I really don't like any books on this topic for general consumption. Again, books, it's, it's a one-size-fits-all thing, right? Manager parts who want to drive the bus within husbands and wives really like books. They want to look at books because, you know, books, it makes it seem like you're doing something, right? But this is not the kind of thing that you can typically figure out on your own just in the realm of ideas and concepts and abstractions. It doesn't really work that way. A lot of books are really heavy on the spirituality. They're heavy on the theology. They're heavy on the the philosophy. They're heavy on the anthropology of the human person from a Catholic conceptualization. And they're really light on actual real world in the trenches experience. That's my experience of them anyway. Uh, I have never had the experience of just handing somebody a book and then it's like, wow, that really solved everything that we had. It just doesn't work that way. And also... I don't think that a lot of the ways that these authors write really appreciates the model of unity and multiplicity within the human person. We really want to be able to understand ourselves. We really want to be able to understand our spouses. Some of these books are much more practical. They're much more like, this is what you do, like recipes and protocols and so forth. And it tries to skip over the unmet needs, the deep work. And maybe that's helpful in terms of some kind of symptom remission in the short run, but I don't see it having a long-term, a long-term impact. The bottom line is that better sexual intimacy depends on better everything else in the marriage relationship. That's how I look at this, right? So talking about human formation, we all need help. We all need structure. We all need support. That's what we try to provide at soulsandhearts.com. And we have been moving over the last several months into more online communities. Uh, The Resilient Catholics community is a place where we really practice relating better with each other, right? I'm going to encourage people, get on the waiting list. If you love this podcast, get on the waiting list, soulsandhearts.com backslash RCC. We've got people joining every week. There's well over a hundred people on the waiting list now. I'm going to encourage you to join with your spouse, right? You know, it's something you and your spouse can do together. Tuesday, May 25th from 7.30 to 8.45 p.m. We're going to meet about the reopening, the relaunch of the Resilient Catholics community. That's going to go out. There's going to be emails that go out to our waiting list members. We're going to invite you to register for that Zoom meeting. We're going to get a link out to all of you by May 18th, right? Uh, Because we are working hard right now to finalize some of the revamping of the RCC. For our new members and our current members, we're going to be providing a kit of measures. We call it the initial measures kit. There are 12 or 13 instruments on that, different questionnaires that will be in that so that each person will have a profile that informs his or her individualized human formation plan. We're going to actually have you meet with Souls and Heart staff to be able to uh, go through that so that it's clear like what we're recommending, right? This isn't therapy, but it is a, a guidance in your human formation. Then we're also going to pair up members of the RCC with companions. And what are companions? Companions are pairs, men with men, women with women, who briefly check in daily with each other to offer encouragement and accountability in the daily human formation practices, right? So not only is there going to be a plan, but then there's going to be this daily check-in about how it's going. Person that's going to be with you, walking with you as your companion on this journey, on this pilgrimage of human formation. Once a week, you're going to have a longer conversation with your companion by phone. The rest of the time maybe by email, but it's going to be about like, here are the things I've been working on. Here's how it's been going, right? So that there's somebody that knows, somebody that cares, 
right? This is a chance for you also to practice caring for your companion. And then groups of four of these companion pairs come together into a company. A company is a group of eight RCC members, and those companies also meet weekly to support each other on the journey. We've got a structure for those meetings. So not only are you going to have a, com- a companion, right? That's a special person that's going to walk with you on this journey, but you're going to have this group, a company, kind of like in the Lord of the Rings, right? The company. Those are just a few ideas. There's going to be a whole program that goes with that. We're really excited about being able to offer this. We don't know of anything else that's out there like it right now. So get on that waiting list soulsandhearts.com backslash RCC to make sure that you're getting updates about that. Registration will be open from June 1st to June 30th, then it'll close again until December. There's going to be a second Wednesday Zoom meeting for current Resilient Catholic community members from 7.30 to 8.45 p.m. And that's when we're going to go over all the changes in the community. We'll give you the inside skinny because some of this is going to be happening and unfolding in the community before June 1st. And then just a reminder about my conversation hours. Any podcast listener can get a hold of me on Tuesdays or Thursdays during May between 4.30 p.m. and 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time on my cell phone, 317-567-9594. Those are phone calls, folks, not just texts, phone calls, right? Call me if you'd like to get in touch. That's May 11th, 13th, 18th, 20th, 25th, and 27th. From 4.30 p.m. to 5.30 p.m., I'm making myself available by phone to be able to talk with any listener that would like to connect with me about anything related to the podcast. All right. So it has been a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for being with me. Please keep me in your prayers. Keep the Resilient Catholics community in your prayers. Keep the other listeners in your prayers. Really appreciate this. This whole endeavor runs on prayer. And with that... We'll invoke our patroness and our patron, Our Lady, Our Mother, Untire of Knots. Pray for us. St. John the Baptist, pray for us.